0: No longer will you be driving home in tears over the overwhelming feeling of trying to manage student behaviors. So sit back, listen up, and start seeing success. welcome to this episode of the Teaching Behavior Together podcast. I am so excited you are here for our second Q&A episode. I get so many questions on Instagram and a lot of times it is so much easier for me just to be able to talk about it and write out long responses to questions and then let you guys know on the podcast as opposed to typing out the answer to a question in an Instagram message. A lot of times on Instagram I'll send you voice messages because I think it's just so much easier to talk about as opposed to typing it all out. And if you have that question, a lot more of you might have that question. So that's why I love doing Q&A episodes. And this is our second Q&A episode. And a lot of the questions this time around really focused on advice type things about being overwhelmed or tips for new teachers or tips for behavior analysts that are going into classrooms. So I'm really excited for this and I hope that it is helpful for you. All right. So the very first question that I got, I got a couple of questions that were similar to this. So I kind of just like summed it up in a question. And that is, do I have any tips for overwhelmed special education teachers? So a couple of the tips that I have, if you were feeling overwhelmed in the field of special education, I would first let you know you are not alone. Special education is hard. There is so much research out there to show that Special educators leave the field within five years at alarming rates. We are leaving the field because our job is hard. It's really, really hard to work in the field of special education. There's a lot going on with teaching to begin with. We have so many things you have to juggle when you're a teacher. But on top of that, there's all the added paperwork and pressure that comes along with being in the field of special education. All the IEPs and the paperwork and the documentation and the data, it's overwhelming. And if you are new to the field, especially if you are new to the field, that feeling of overwhelm, you are not alone. Do not think you're alone. Do not think you're the only teacher that feels overwhelmed and know that it's okay to feel overwhelmed. If you are feeling overwhelmed and you just feel like stuck and you don't know what to do, the very first thing I would do is develop systems and procedures for yourself. And if you listen to the episode I did about developing systems and procedures for your students, it's the exact same thing. Walk through your day. What things do you have to do that you can develop a system or procedure for so that they are done efficiently? Nothing gets done well if we don't know exactly how we're going to do it. If you think about, okay, so let's just take an example, like a real life example. You have systems and procedures for paying your bills, probably, right? You have probably some sort of system set up so that you get notified when you have to pay a bill You because God knows not all of our bills are due at the same time, or at least mine aren't. I have some bills that are due on the 27th of a month, some bills that are due on the first of a month, some bills that are due on the 15th of a month. And if I don't have a system or procedure around how I manage my bills and making sure that I pay them on time, then it's not gonna get done well, right? So you might have a system where you have reminders and you have Uh, Ways in which you set up, you know, automatic withdrawal or whatever that you do to make that work efficiently. So, think about that in your classroom. Like, let's think about a classroom example together. Think about, you know, sending home parent communication. If you don't have a clear system around how you're going to communicate with parents, whether that be daily notebooks that you send home, weekly emails that you send home, phone calls that you send home, rotating basis of when you do notes and phone calls or whatever you might do then it's not going to run well in your classroom. It's going to seem like an overwhelming task. And that can be really, really overwhelming when you kind of feel like frazzled all the time, like you're only surviving for the next 30 minutes in your classroom. You just have to get this next task done. And then you're already worried about the following task after that. If you develop systems and procedures around the different aspects of your day, it's going to run so much smoother. If you develop systems and procedures about the different tasks that you have to do, how you write an IEP from start to finish, make a task list. What goes into an IEP? What exactly do I have to do for from the start of writing this IEP to the end of this IEP, from the start of the meeting to the end of the meeting? That way you really have a system and procedure on how you do that in your classroom. I can't tell you enough how many systems and procedures that I developed over the years that have really helped me feel less overwhelmed. I am a behavior specialist now, and when I was first starting this job, I was completely overwhelmed. Like overwhelmed is not even the word for it. I came home exhausted every day because I was just, felt like I was just surviving for that day. I didn't know systems and procedures that I had to do day to day to make sure that I was running efficiently in my job. And once I sat down and really evaluated, okay, what are my day-to-day tasks? What are things that I have to do each day? What are things that I have to do globally on a week scale or on a month scale or on a bi-weekly scale? And how can I develop systems and procedures around that? I was so much better off after I did that and I really encourage you to take that step. And know if you start developing a system and procedure and it's not working, that's okay. When you're developing a system and procedure, it might not feel great. I have this like internal frazzledness that I always feel when I'm developing a system or procedure for something and it really doesn't resolve until I know that, that it's working after two or three weeks when I see, okay, this is working, I can handle this, this is making me feel better that I know that I've done a, a good job around that system and procedure for my job another thing that I would do would be to batch as much work as you can. I know that that's kind of like a term that's used in the entrepreneurial world. Um, If you are familiar with, you know, if you listen to entrepreneurial podcasts or business podcasts, you might be familiar with batching content. You know, I batch these podcasts. For instance, I record a month's worth of podcasts in one day so that I don't feel like I'm just surviving for the next week. I record a podcast and then I have to record one the next week and the next week and the next week. I record all of them in one day and then on another day I upload them all, edit them all, and upload them into the system that houses them and schedules them out for everyone to hear. And if I didn't do it that way where I batch all of the recording one day and I batch all of the behind the scenes work another day... I was just surviving for that next week and it made me feel frazzled and anxious all the time. So I had to develop a system and procedure around that. One day, well half a day, I spend drafting all of the outlines for my podcast the next day I record all of the episodes for a month. So I record four episodes for a month. And then on another day during that week, I upload all the episodes and process them and edit them and all the behind the scenes thing, schedule them out so that they're available to listen to on the dates that I schedule them for. And that's how I batch this content for work. I do a lot of like trainings or I train individual people on certain interventions and stuff and I batch those trainings. So if I know that I'm going to be training someone, I create a bunch of trainings all in one day. So I'm like, well, I need to train this person on this intervention, this person on this intervention. So I create those trainings and, you know, PowerPoints or whatever I need for those all in one day. And I try and do that as best as possible at work is when I'm looking at content or something that I have to do for my job, if I can get it done, all in one sitting, then that's the way to go. If as much as you can batch, it really increases your productivity. Think about for like your IEPs and stuff, is there a way that you can batch some of the work around IEPs, whether it's calling parents to schedule meetings, maybe right at the beginning of the year, you call your parents and you schedule all of your meetings for the year so that you know you have those meeting dates available to you. That's a great idea, scheduling all of your meetings at one time so you don't always feel like, all right, I have to call this parent, I have to call this parent, I have to call this parent to schedule a meeting. You can already know when your meetings are because you batch that job or task that you have. And the last tip I have for you if you're overwhelmed is self-care. I know that's so cliche and everyone says it. And I guess I don't really mean self-care in the traditional sense of do yoga or meditate or go on a walk or go on a run or exercise or move your body, but really do something that interests you, you know, find something that interests you and that takes your mind off of work. Something that really interests me is listening to audiobooks and podcasts. I love doing that. On the way home from work, I listen to audiobooks and podcasts and it. I don't listen to things about school. I don't listen to things about education. I don't further my skills and abilities when I leave work. Work. I do that while I'm at work and I leave work on time and I put a podcast in and it's just something that I enjoy listening to. It's about a topic that I enjoy or something that I find interesting. And when I get home, I do a little bit more work for the online class that I teach than I usually go and work out. And and I do reserve that time on my way to and from school to, to do something that I enjoy. And that's just the time that I carve out. And it just so happens that I enjoy something that you can multitask with. You know, like if you have like crafting, I really enjoy crafting, but it's not the thing that I choose to do each and every day. But if that's for you or cooking or something, just making sure you're fitting that in a couple of times a week. So it just doesn't feel like you're always bogged down by work and thinking about work and doing work. Do something that takes your mind off of work and do something that you really enjoy at night. I do want to reiterate that you are not alone and feeling overwhelmed is okay. Ask other teachers for help and support. Reach out to other people that you see doing things really well and see if they can help guide you through something that you're overwhelmed with. Let other people know that you feel overwhelmed. There's no shame in feeling overwhelmed. Our jobs can be really overwhelming and you have to take care of yourself as an educator and let yourself know it's okay to be overwhelmed and... And not saying that you have to stay in that safe level because when I'm overwhelmed, I want to get out of that state as soon as possible. But knowing that it's a process and that you can diminish that overwhelm and that feeling of overwhelm, you will be okay. You will not be overwhelmed as you keep going through the process, as you keep learning new things, as you keep developing your skills as a teacher. Things will calm down. Things will get better. And you'll develop those systems and procedures and feel less of that overwhelm. So the second most frequently asked question I had, had to do with somebody who was already a BCBA and they've had previous clinic experience, but now they were gonna be moving into a school and they were wondering if I had any advice. And at first I just wanna start off and say, oh my gosh, it's amazing. I'm so, so glad that you are working in a school. We need more BCBAs in schools. We need more BCBAs to help students with behavioral issues and social emotional learning and the overall success of our students. And I'm so, so happy more and more districts are moving to this model. When I I started out um, in ABA over 10 years ago. Many BCBAs were not in schools. It was a lot of autism help and autism support in clinics and in home settings. And I was just really, really hoping that by the time that I was done with school and I was ready to enter into the field that there be more BCBAs in schools. And I am so, so happy that there are. I have my literal dream job and whenever somebody that has their BCBA asks me what I do, I tell them this is my dream job. I love what I do. I would not have it any other way. I hope to be in a school forever. Like this is what I love doing and I'm so, so happy that you are entering schools and I hope that you love it as much as I do because I'm slightly obsessed with my job. But to get into the advice portion of this, the first thing that I would say is to really take time when you enter into the building, sometimes you'll be placed in multiple buildings, but whatever your situation might be to really get to know the administration and the teachers in the building, just like we build rapport with our students when we first enter into some sort of family service or clinic-based service, we really want to sit down and build rapport with the people in that building that you are going to be helping service. So, A lot of times BCBAs right now are operating in a consultative role, meaning that you're helping teachers and supporting teachers with the implementation of interventions and you're the one coming into the classroom to help support them with the interventions or an overall classroom management plan. And for some teachers that can be overwhelming and really getting to know teachers and building rapport with teachers can go such a long way when you do go into their classroom and you are making recommendations for them. Another thing that I would also advise is really observe how a school works and functions because there are a lot of things that are very different about interventions that occur in a school than interventions that can occur in a home. For example, like escape extinction, sometimes we can use that in a home, but a lot of times we can't use that in a school for various reasons. And just like really observing what goes on in a school, the systems and procedures in schools, so that you're able to really tailor your interventions to be feasible. And that really... Uh, leads us into my last piece of advice for BCBAs entering schools is feasibility of your interventions. If you look at a behavior plan that has to do with like a clinic-based setting or a home-based setting, it's intense. There's a lot that goes into that plan and rightfully so, behavior is complex and we a lot of times we need some pretty intense behavior plans, but if we're framing our mindset of we work in a school, a lot of times we need to pare that back a little bit and really look at what's feasible so that we are focusing on treatment fidelity, meaning that we are really honing in on what can a teacher feasibly implement so that it's carried out with fidelity so that student is successful. As as opposed to like, implementing every single intervention we can think of for that behavior, we really want to sit back and look at feasibility. And I found the most success when I am recommending interventions to a teacher for overall classroom management or for an individual student. I found the most success when I go in there with a lot of different options. Just like our students like choice, I tell the teacher, okay, so this is what we're working with. These are some of the intervention options you have. This is what each intervention would look like and really give them the option of, okay, what do you think is feasible in your classroom? How can we work this? So it is feasible for, both for you to implement because we know if we go in there with a behavior plan and it's not feasible for them to implement, it's not gonna get implemented with fidelity and then that student is the one that isn't getting the services that they might need. So we really have to look at a lot of the dynamics at play when you go into a classroom and feasibility is a huge one. So I always go in with like a menu of options and really allow that student and that teacher a lot of choice and voice in the matter when I am making those intervention decisions. The last thing that you wanna do is go into a classroom and come out with a plan for the teacher and say, here's my plan, go ahead and start implementing it. Or you know, here's my behavior plan that you wrote alone in your office by yourself. That is not going to be a way to get feasibility into your behavior plan because you don't know it's feasible to them based on one or two observations. You really have to sit down with the teacher and the team and make sure that everyone is on board for that intervention or that behavior plan, that classroom management plan so that it is carried out with fidelity. But again, I am so, so happy that you were working in a school and I'm so, so glad that we were getting more BCBAs in schools. And if you're out there and you are a special education teacher or just a teacher that is going back to get their masters and they're looking into if they should get the BCBA, That's another question I get a couple of times is if I recommend getting the BCBA. uh, Yes, 100%, I recommend getting the BCBA. If you are going back to school or maybe you're already in a master's program and you have the option or ability to take some of those ABA courses, I highly, highly recommend it. The teachers that I've worked with that have gone back and gotten their BCBA tell me all the time how grateful they are that they went back and got their BCBA because it is so, so vital in a classroom and it can be applied to so many different things. I highly, highly recommend it. If you are looking to get your master's in something, look at getting your master's in ABA. And if you already have a master's, but you want to add some behavioral component onto it, I highly, highly recommend pursuing the bcba it can be a little bit daunting at first because there are some classes you have to take and some experience and it's hard to find a supervisor that has a lot of school experience but it can be done i promise you it can be done and once you have it and you have that knowledge and experience it just it it goes so far when we are working with students in a school setting it is just it's so vital and so needed in our schools All right, so I got also a couple of questions about how to avoid burnout, and this kind of goes along with the question that I got about overwhelm in special education. I did want to talk about burnout a little bit as well because this is such a important part of our field meaning that we need to avoid burnout as teachers and as educators because we got into these jobs because this is what we love to do and if you run yourself too much if you stretch yourself too thin you're going to burn out and you really want to avoid burning out so that you can be there for your students and you can be in this job for a really long time one step that i've used to avoid burnout is to really prioritize my to-do list and by that i mean my goals and objectives for the year or for the month or for a quarter or something along those lines A lot of times I can get overwhelmed with, I want to do all of the things and I want to do all of the things tomorrow. And that can lead to running yourself too thin, stretching yourself too thin and not being able to get it all done and then feeling disappointed and then leading to burnout. So really prioritize what are your goals for this month, this quarter, and just focus on that. Put your energy into one or two things, one or two priorities and focus on that. And that'll really help you avoid burnout because you're not doing 500 things all at one time. Say if you really want to focus on your social emotional learning in your classroom and you really wanna focus on classroom management and you really wanna focus on enhancing your literacy centers and you really wanna focus on your morning meeting. That's a lot. Pick one of those things every month and just focus on that. For one month, you might wanna just really focus on developing the social-emotional learning capacity that you have in your classroom, whether that be finding a curriculum that you can use, whether that be building in social-emotional learning centers in your classroom, build that up over a month so that after a month that can run on maintenance and carry out for the next couple of months for a while you're focusing on your literacy centers and then really focus on developing those literacy centers and really developing the literacy program that you have in your classroom and focus on that for a month so then that can run on maintenance and then focus on your classroom management for a month. So then that can run on maintenance. It's all about really picking priorities and focusing on them for a shorter period of time, putting all of your energy into that so that you're able to then focus on other things and have those things well-developed and running on maintenance for the rest of the year. Another thing that I would do to avoid burnout is to delete your email off your phone. I've never put my email on my phone and this is a boundary that I set when I was in grad school. So when you're in grad school, a lot of times the perception is that you should be available from 8 a.m. to probably 9 or 10 p.m. at night. That's how it was when I was in grad school as well as when I was in my PhD program. You should be available to be at meetings, to be at work, to be in classes, to be doing homework, to be working on group projects for 14, 15 hours a day and that's too much and I knew once I was out of that environment that that could not be how I operated my life anymore and a big part of that was stop answering my emails and stop checking my email after 3.45, 4 o'clock when your contract is up. So I just don't even put my email on my phone and that way I don't have I'm never tempted to check my email because you might be waiting for an email from someone and like it's 5 30 and you're like well let me just see if they emailed me so I can prepare for tomorrow whatever it is. No. No, because then you're just going to be thinking, thinking about it all night and that's not good. You're going to take too much work home. If you keep checking your email at night, just leave your email off, take it off your phone, delete it off your phone, delete the notification settings or whatever you have to do so that you're not constantly checking it at night. Another thing that I do that's kind of like the email thing is... I don't text people back that I work with after my contract time. Now there are people that I work with that I'm friends with and that talk to me about things other than work and that we text back and forth or something like that that's more of like a friend relationship as opposed to a coworker relationship and I will text them back after work hours but I typically will not text someone back about work something if they ask me about sending an email or if I was able to talk to this person or if I was able to pull this thing or this intervention or whatever it might be I just don't text them back until the next morning and I know there's a lot of people that like say set a boundary and tell them your boundary and let them know. I'm not that assertive, so I typically don't do that. I just typically don't answer them, and over time, they learn like, oh, this person doesn't text back after 4 o'clock, and they're typically fine with it. I've never had a problem with it. I also don't text my coworkers about work stuff after 4 o'clock. I, you know, if I have a question for them, I save it for the next day because I respect their time as well, and... I, again, I don't set that boundary in meaning that I tell them that's my boundary because I'm just not an assertive enough person to do that. I just kind of model that and show them like this is what I do. And all of them have respected that. And I've been very lucky in that manner that people haven't gotten upset about me not texting back right away. But it's just a boundary that I have that when I'm at home, I'm at home and I am enjoying time with my family and doing the things that I like to do, working out, listening to audiobooks, and again, just hanging out with my family and not answering emails, not answering text messages about work. I also don't do any work on the weekends. And I know some of you might be thinking, if I didn't do any work on the weekends, I would be completely overwhelmed during the week. And what I would tell you is, look at what the you're doing over the weekend and see if you can develop a system or a procedure around that that would allow you to do that during the week so that you can get it done during the week or set parameters around when you're gonna work on the weekends. So I do work on the weekends for the grad class that I teach. It's just not feasible enough for me to work 40 hours a week, work out, do the things that I wanna do at home every night and let myself decompress and relax at night to be able to also do the extra work of teaching a grad class during the fall, winter, and spring semesters. So I do have to do some work on the weekends, but I set parameters around that. I say from eight to 10 o'clock on Saturday is when I'm doing my work for this grad class and that's all the work that I'm doing for the weekend for that grad class. I set very clear parameters around it and, and I engage in only that during that time period so that I'm able to get it done during those two hours and I don't have to spend my entire weekend doing that. So if you do feel like you have to do work on the weekends just to catch up and feel less overwhelmed during the week, then just set parameters around it. Say, this is a time frame that I'm gonna be working on it, and be really productive during that time frame so that you're not feel like you're constantly like, oh, well, doing 15 minutes here, half an hour there, an hour there. And it, over time, it just feels like your entire day was taken up doing work. And if you can just set some structure and parameters around that, that can be helpful in setting your ability to be efficient during that time and get that work done so you're not doing it all day and feeling like you never left work on the weekends. Another thing you can do to avoid burnout is to, when you are around your coworkers, say during lunch or something like that, is to not talk about work and to let people know, like, you know, I'd rather not talk about work all day. I'd rather, you know, talk about my family or my kids or, you know, get to know people on a personal level. So it's not just always work, work, work. And we can all, we also know some of those negative circles we can get in at work where, you know, the conversation is not always necessarily positive. And that can just kind of decrease how you think about your day overall as if you're, you know, at lunch and it's kind of getting into that negative cycle that sometimes we see, you know, if you don't want to be around that, then don't be around that and find coworkers that you can just talk to about other things. I have a great group of coworkers that we, we don't talk about work during lunch and it's so much more enjoyable. When I was getting my PhD, I had an amazing friend that whenever we were together, we didn't talk about school. We tried to talk about other things, our lives and our families and stuff like that, because we don't want to just sit around and always talk about school and always be immersed in school and we kept things really positive and we were able to avoid burnout in that way and if I can recommend anything it would be to find a group of people that have your back at school and that you can connect with outside of school and beyond just your work environment and really connect with on like a personal level. And then lastly, just again, finding something that you enjoy doing and focusing on that can really help to avoid burnout, finding a different passion, something to do outside of school that you can put some of your energy in when you get home and on the weekends and during the summers that can be really helpful in avoiding burnout as well. So that's all I have for you today. Thank you for submitting questions. I didn't get to all of them, but I will be doing probably monthly Q&A episodes where I'm answering more questions. So if your question didn't get answered this time, it'll probably get answered next time. Thank you again for submitting questions. If you're not already following me over on Instagram, that's where I usually post that I'm looking for questions. You can follow me at Teaching Behavior Together, send me messages. I'm happy to answer your questions over there as well. You can also see the daily content I post about behavioral and social emotional learning. And if you would be so kind and leave a review or rating on this episode, if, or this podcast, if you enjoyed them, if you have been enjoying them, That would mean so, so much to me and it would help other teachers find this content and find this podcast so they're able to hear about the interventions and strategies to talk about on here. Thank you again for listening and I hope you have a great rest of the day.